By way of introduction, I'm Keith. I am the father of seven so far. Actually, we're, we are done, yeah. Our baby just graduated from high school and she's off at Colorado State. Our kids range from 18 to 35. We've got eight grandkids and number nine and 10 are on the way. So life is good in that respect. Dave, how about you? I am uh, been married for 22, almost 22 years. I have four kids, 18, 15, eight, and six. Uh, as always kind of a standing joke around my house, my wife likes to say she has two separate families from the same man. So we had took this big break in between, and uh, for some odd reason, we didn't take the family planning class very well. So I'm going to be graduating kids when I'm 70, yeah. um, which is good. It keeps me young. But we have four kids, and my oldest, and you kind of see me probably pop in and out. My oldest came back and surprised her mom and dad from Texas, where she's at school down there. And uh, so she's been here this weekend, so we've been spending as much time having all four kiddos back home. It's been now, in our first session, we found that we had a wide range of dadhood around the room. So we're going to go around and have each of you just share real quick yourself and how many children you have. And if there are any unique needs in your life. Interestingly, we had a guy in the first session who had a daughter who has cancer, 15 years old, and we prayed with him for that particular need. Perhaps you're a special needs dad or perhaps a single dad. So share that as you go around. So I'm Troy. I'm father of three, uh, two are stepchildren. They're uh, 27 and 26. And uh, then I've got a daughter, 16, uh, with my wife of 18 years. So uh, just want to learn how to be the best father I can be. My name's Eric. Um, I have five children. So I have a seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old, and then the last two are twins that are nice. seven months old. So we're tired. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to do the will. Hey, I'm Samuel. I've got two. Uh, six-year-old. Well, going to be six in a couple of days. And a nine-year-old. I'm Ryan. i got four. Um, nine, seven, two, six months. And my wife is three months pregnant. So I'm tired like Eric. <laughs> Uh, my name is Kevin. I've got two daughters, uh, 18 and 19. Yeah, my name is Kevin. I just, I just have one, one child. She's uh, a daughter. She's 16. And I, I thought I had it all figured out until she got to be a teenager, and now I'm just, I, I confess, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I really need this class. My name is Jerry, um, and I have two children. I have David, who is 46. Uh, he's uh, in a wheelchair, but he comes here. Uh, he's a builder also. I have a daughter who is 49, and she's a paramedic. I have three grandchildren, um, four grandchildren, and I have two great-grandchildren. My name is Gary. Um, I have uh, three children. 23, two daughters, 23 and 18, and a son who's 10. Um, so I started out with girls and got a boy at the end there, so I'm trying to figure him out. So. Uh, name's Mike. I have four stepchildren, and I have two of my own. Uh, stepchildren ranges from 18 to 13, and mine is 15 and 2. Also Mike, so... Three mics now. 
Uh, three kids, uh, five, nine, and 12. All right, so another mic here, but I have uh, two daughters, uh, one's 27, I have a grandson um, who's two years old, she's uh, married, lives in Grand Junction. My youngest daughter is 22, she's getting married next month, so yeah, good to have the girls, but nice to have a grandson, so. I'm Bill, I have uh, three kids, a son that's 10, and twin daughters that are seven years old. My name's Lee, I've got a 13-month-old, and then my wife is about nine months pregnant right now. Nice, congrats. Oh, I think we've got a couple set of twins here, right? Like three mm -hmm. sets of twins? Yeah, wow, I, I'm, we had yeah. none in the first, in the first group. So right, this, so. This is, the, this is the twins group. Very, very good. When you come to a fatherhood group, you might have an idea of what you would hope to discuss or what you would hope to think about. What I'm gonna roll out for you is just the thought of First of all, that you can be good fathers because God will give you the ability to do that. That part should be hopefully not even a question in your mind. A lot of people, I think, are struggling with whether or not I'm a failure as a dad. What if my kids are hitting bumps in the road and you know they've struggled? I'm a failure as a dad. Who's the best father in the world? God is. Does God have any children that struggle? And some of them are here in the room, right? Amen? Including me. And therefore, the measure of you as a father is not whether or not your children are perfect. So hopefully we can just kind of kick that idea right out the door that you're going to start off raising perfect kids. Because you're not. But you will raise them to be the best they can be in the Lord's sight. Right? right. And would that be a worthy goal? Yes, sir. Okay. Would it be a good statement for me to say... Our job is to raise good, godly children. Think about it. Now, it's not a wrong statement. But what about this? Our job as parents is to raise good, godly adults. Even better thought? Okay. And therefore, our, our role as parents is going to be to help our children walk through the issues of life and transition into becoming good adults so that someday they can raise godly adults. All right? Picture yourself in this position of being a, a patriarch, if you will. I'm 57. I think I've got one guy here that's got children in your 40s, so I'm guessing you're a little bit older than me, unless you started in your single-digit age. Okay, no, I didn't go there. I look at my children and my grandchildren as a godly dynasty, if you will, that generations will be affected because of the way I raise my family. Can you think of yourself in that way? Even though maybe right now you're just getting started. Your children are small. I'd like to cast that kind of a vision for you and be for you that what you do as a parent now will raise godly children who can then raise godly children who can then raise godly children and for generations to follow god can work in people's lives just because of the things we do as dads to be able to raise our children as godly adults okay i'm going to hand out a piece of paper i just want to send that around are these some two here Keith? uh these are actually oh, just yours. my copy and i want to make sure we get one back around for you as well 
This has got just a couple of questions on it, and we're going to get started with throwing a little bit up here on the board. At the bottom of this page, there are a few scripture passages that are written out that talk about how God is our Father and how God watches over us and cares for us as a father does his children. Also has some of those passages of scripture that exhort us as dads to raise our children in a godly way, not to provoke them to anger, but instead raise them up in the training and the teaching and the, the, in the King James words, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So some of those kinds of passages of scripture that are just good things to remind yourself of. But as these finish coming around, you'll see the first block there says, our greatest example of a father is God himself. It's got a few blanks to fill in there, but I'm going to just use the board to do that as well. What are some of the qualities of God, the attributes of God, that you think are important? Okay, so I heard loved, correct? Okay. God is love. God is loving. I heard something else. Patient. Just yell them on out. Kind. Just. Ooh. Just. Compassionate. Hmm. Is that a good quality as a dad? Well, first of all, none of us have it, right? You know what I think is so funny about that? We actually had that same attribute earlier, and it was interesting. You know, I wouldn't necessarily thought it would have been as yeah. prevalent, but it's been... It uh, has uh, been. It's, it's an been interesting thought. In, in, both, in, in both groups. Okay, all-knowing. What else do you think of when you think of God's qualities? Mm. Well, that's a good, back that, to that's those a good things. point. Um, what's your first name again? Jim. Jim. Jim brings up a good point. We'll stop here for just a second because we had the same kind of discussion point in the very beginning. Is that some of these, as we, as as Keith puts them up, as you guys shout them out, may not ring true to you. Right. They they may not be. You may be like, well, God's not. You know, he's not loving because your functional image of God may not be loving. Might be, might be more discipline. It might be more fervor. It might be more anger. And as you guys process through this, as dads, it's going to be so important that these words on this board, just because you may not believe them to be true, don't make them not true. So as you're processing, passing on good father genes to your son or daughter who, like Keith was mentioning, who can pass them on to their sons and daughters and so forth and so on, it starts with really a, a pure and true functional image of who God is to you. And some of these we're not going to take for granted to believe that all of them are going to be rightly assessed by ourselves, right? So if you do have one that pops up, just jot it down and, and be prayerful to, to take that before the Lord this week and ask him why maybe that doesn't ring true with you. Okay, good. What other attributes of God come to mind? Forgiving, okay, good. Constant. constant interesting word yeah what do you mean by that and I, I agree ah okay very good 
Ooh, available. Okay, good, and that's interesting because most everything we've put up there has been an adjective, right? Now this is a noun kind of role, but it's, it's a role that God fulfills, our protector. Does that spur anything else in your mind? Teacher, okay, I heard provider. As we go through that list, these again are attributes of God overall, but remember that God's, one of God's principal roles is that he is our father. If you read through the Old Testament, you get God as creator, God as judge, God as giver of the law, and a lot of different things. But when we come into the New Testament, the one term by which Jesus referred to God the most was father. And I think that introduced a new relationship that he wants us to know. That God is all those things, the creator and sustainer of the universe and ultimately the judge of the universe. But as we walk out our lives, he is our father. Now, with those as your characteristics of God the Father, one of your questions on the page was, does any of this jump out and speak to you to say, hmm, that's maybe an attribute I should work on as a father? I won't ask you to shout those out, but maybe you can make a note to self on that one. Kind of take a look through that list. As dads, we all have the heart to want to be the provider for our family, naturally. We want to protect our children. How available am I as a dad? Am I kind of absent? Or even when I'm there, maybe I'm not all there. I'm just kind of existing. Okay, that's a truth. How many of you have faced that? He said that the ability to be the provider, there's a give and take with being available in that. You know, a good point, uh, point and we settled on available even in the first session, is because a lot of us generationally maybe didn't experience his dad, dads that were available. I mean, I grew up in a generation, I'm the youngest of five, just on the back end of the baby boomers, the X generation, the very beginning of that, where we were the beginning of the latchkey kids. You know, we, um, we came home to empty houses. You know, two parents working. It was kind of a new cultural norm. So, you know, when I was in my early 30s and kind of processing what availability looked like, you know, and, and I didn't necessarily consider God to be available because my dad wasn't available because he was a provider. He was a, a worker, you know, and raising five kids in a culture was, was difficult to do financially. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of disconnects and how do we wrestle with the tension today in today's culture and society about being present and available being a provider, all-encompassing in the correct form that God wants us to be, adjusting our, you know, desire for this for our desire for our family. 
Does that make sense? There's a tension there. Mm -hmm. And how does it rest with you? And albeit, it's going to be out of balance at times. You got young kids, you're just out of balance. Yeah. You don't get as much sleep as you want. You know? And then when you get older kids, maybe you don't have as much money as you want. <laughs> so it's just, just that way. Or kids in college. Yeah, you're spending uh, your life in the car, running them to activities. Right. And a lot of you have been there, right? If I were to ask you how you would view your own dad, how many of you would say you had a dad who wasn't available? Okay, several. And that might have been because he was completely absent, you know, was gone. Or maybe he was that workaholic. And maybe he had to, maybe he needed to just to put food on the table. Or maybe he was there, but all he did was watch television and therefore didn't have a lot of impact into your life. We can learn a lot of lessons from our own dads, both good and bad right. lessons. And we want to take the good and then improve on those negative qualities and become more like the qualities that we see God living out in our lives as a father. Let's shift a little bit then and just talk about how then we can start investing in our own kids better. I mentioned the idea of our goal is not to raise good kids, but raise good adults. It is an important thing for you to remember, and it, this is something that we tried to do within our own children, that our intent was to raise them to be successful adults. So that time is going to come when we're going to release them out into their own life and their own calling in the Lord and set them free, if you will. It can be a little harder for the mama than for the daddy because mom's hearts sometimes tend to not want to let go, you know, and oh, they're going off to college, but I still kind of have to hover over them and be the mommy to them. But one of the ways that we did that in our family, and this is something that you can consider for your own, when our boys got to be age 13, we had the equivalent of a Christian bar mitzvah. You guys familiar with the bar mitzvah ceremony in Jewish culture? You know, when a boy reaches age 13, they have a ceremony and he'll talk about the law and scriptures and they'll have, you know, a big thing at the synagogue and food and all of that. But the intent of that ceremony is to say, you become a young man now. We're going to start letting you be more like a man, let you make some decisions. You probably get some of them wrong. And we did that with our own sons. We had the ceremony and all that, but the ceremony wasn't so much the important thing as we're going to let you guys start to make some decisions as you grow. And you'll probably get them wrong. And we had that conversation with them. As a dad, if you expect you're going to have perfect kids, you need to get over that right now. If you haven't already, right? They're going to make mistakes. The time for them to make mistakes is while they're still in the home, under your loving care and protection, and you walk those mistakes out together. And then they know mom and dad aren't going to beat them up because they made a mistake. Mom and dad are going to help coach them through it. And your role shifts sort of from becoming so, as much of a parent as it is a coach ready to put them on the field and let them succeed. Parents that don't let their kids make mistakes are just forcing them to make them later on in life when the consequences are bigger. I mentioned what, earlier when I was in college, I went to a Christian college, and there, you could tell the kids that came there from the overprotective parents because they could not handle the freedom. And they did stupid things. You know, we saw some of them that would break into the dining hall and just turn all the chairs upside down and the tables upside down just to be stupid. And it almost got them kicked out of college because they, they couldn't make decisions 
without consequences because mommy and daddy had never let them do it. So let me encourage you, when your kids get into those teenage years, with guidance, start giving them some freedoms. Maybe they're going to want to stay up some night and not do their homework and just watch a movie. Is that okay? Well, it's not smart. But if they do that and they stay up too late, the next day they still have to get up and go to school on time. And mom and dad have to be the enforcer of those consequences. And then they go to school and they didn't do their homework. Well, now they have to stay after school and sit in detention or whatever the school does. There can be some consequences for those silly decisions. But what's the price of that decision? They get delayed and get stuck after school one day. Or they get a little behind in their schoolwork and now they got to catch up on that. But students, that, or children that don't learn to make those decisions early on wind up making bad decisions as adults. And those decisions can send you to prison, right? And so doesn't it make sense to allow your children to start to make some decisions while they're in the home? Mom and dad can give some coaching to them and, you know, and still walk them through in the love situation. I want to share a passage of scripture with you too that when you hear it, you will think that has nothing to do with parenting. Okay? Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and rulers of darkness in the high places. So what does that have to do with parenting? Okay. We have an enemy, and it's not our children, okay? And we don't want to let our children view us as the enemy either. We have an enemy. Those are the ones that we're really trying to deal with. And whenever issues then come up between you and your children, find a way to be alongside them and say, here's an issue out here. We, we need to deal with this, but we're not going to let it come between us because this is not God's will for us. God's will is not for us to be against you as, as our children. This, by the way, is a good principle for your marriage also. Rather than let issues come between you and your wife, keep that issue out there. Together, we're going to link arms and we're going to face that issue together, but we're not going to let it come between us because there is an enemy and he is real, guys. He's so real that Jesus dealt with him publicly all the time. He even talked to him. Jesus not only believed in the devil, he talked to him quite a bit. Yeah. He not only believed in demons, but he talked to them all the time. Okay, we have that. That's the reality of the world we live in. And that spiritual battle is going on to attack your children. Find a way then to be alongside your children and face those issues together. And, and teach them that spiritual principle as well. Does all of that kind of resonate in your hearts a little bit? Seem like there's some truth in that? Okay. So what do you do when kids get into this age when they're starting to make wrong decisions? First of all, why are they even going through that? Okay, is that a good thing? For your children to want to be independent? Does that mean rebellious? No. no, it doesn't. That's what God created them to be, independent individuals that will stand and walk with God and respond to him and walk things out with him. 
So if we recognize that early enough on, let's turn our kids loose to do those kinds of things with guidance and protection. So their desire for independence is not sinful. It's not rebellious. Honestly, it's what God created them to be. They can still have attitude problems in there. That doesn't mean all their attitudes are good, okay? Okay, <laughs> some laughter on that side, yeah. Okay, but our role as parents is to coach them through those attitude times. Some of it is just because they're going through adolescence, and they're trying to figure out what this new body is like, you know. And, and then all of their friends that are going through that same kind of stuff at school and all of the drama that goes on with that. That's not easy and it's not pretty. Rather than being against our children in that time, let's coach them through it. Walk them through it with wisdom. And we will see them have a greater level of victory. Can you do that as a dad? And that's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about it. Am I willing to view that little kid as an independent being that God really wants to take into a mature independence with him. Think about it. Because our goal is not to raise good kids, it's to raise godly adults that are responsible before him. And one of the things Dave, over to you. One of the things that's so interesting about parenting too is that I, a lot of you have more multiple children, three, four, five, you know, children living in the same house. And those of you who have multiple kids realize that they have multiple different personalities. I, I was just home, like I said, my 18-year-old flew in and surprised us, and the four of them were sitting you know, at the bar in the kitchen area, and they were doing a project together. And I, I was just amazed, my wife and I were sitting there for just a moment, how different each one of them is as they grow into their personality. So the, the interesting part for moms and dads is that we kind of have to be the all-knowing part, right? We, we've got to somewhat adjust to accomplish what Keith is talking about. We take a hard line, you know, and everybody's supposed to conform to this one line. It, it, we're probably going to have a lot of butting of heads, especially in the teenage years, all right? Interesting enough, God talked to the, to the nation of Israel. What was the main issue with God and the nation of Israel? <laughs> they were prone to wander. They literally wandered all the time. They would, God would bring himself to them in a real miraculous way. And then, you know, to coach them and train them to love them, to be all of this to them. And within minutes, it seemed like in Scripture, it would be more like weeks or months. But in the next page, they're off building golden calves and worshiping idols and, you know, intermarrying with the Canaanites and just doing things that he just literally told them not to do. Does any of that sound familiar as parents? <laughs> you know, I mean, if you have a 15-year-old son, you got to give me an amen on that. You know, I mean, it's like we just, I'm like, we just had this conversation. And five minutes later, I'm seeing the antithesis of the result of my conversation I just had with you. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us, those of us who have teenagers, that this DNA runs in all of us. And, and, and the only hope that we have for any type of true connection is through Christ in that, in the, re, the redemption, the hope, the, the peace, the love, and bringing that to our children and modeling it the best way we can so they can see that in us and want to become like us as we want to become like Christ. Like Paul said, right? 
If you don't follow anybody else, follow me, First Corinthians, right? Follow me because I know I'm following Christ. I don't know about anybody else, but I know I'm following Jesus. And he really set up this unique model perspective to the churches that he planted. So we've always used that as a kind of a foundational model in our family. I don't know what anybody else is doing, but follow me, son, as I attempt not perfection, not this thing of moralism, not like this lofty self-righteousness, but as I attempt to be that for you, just as Christ is that to me. Make sense? Yes, sir. And it's not going to be 100% all the time. We're going to fail miserably. (laughs) I wanted to say as we came in here, Keith, that that, uh, if you were having the expectation that you were going to walk away, you know, being a... 20% 20% better dad than when you walked in. I don't know. You, we probably should all quit early and go grab the soda out in the, in the hallway. But the hope lies in our reflection of these things as we open up and follow a true discipled life. Yeah, I think you mentioned that earlier. That Those qualities are really only going to happen when God does it through us. You know, we can grit our teeth and work ourselves up, and that will last a while. Mm. But the more we release ourselves and completely sell ourselves to let God work through us, then those kinds of qualities do come through more. As we've talked, have any, any more qualities come to mind up there? That's a good point. Um, yeah. that, that's a really good... No, no, no. That's, that fits in hand and glove to what we're talking about, is that in order to have any of these measure of personality, character, traits, whatever you want to, you know, in your spirit of God to, to instill any of these in you, Love, patience, kindness, compassion. Wouldn't we say all of those are quality father traits, men of God traits that we would love to have in great capacity? It's impossible to have those capacities, like Jim said, those abilities outside of Jesus. It's just not. So great example that he was just sharing with us, and it really kind of dovetails into what Keith and I have been talking about. And and even what I was moving into here as we wrap up is... It's impossible to have these or to be the kind of dad that we want to be without pursuing a discipled life. So what does a discipled life mean? So we we say, I love the metaphor of spinning the the telescope around. We were looking at our son or our daughter saying, we want them to get it. We want them to do something that we're not doing. And I don't want this next con- little bit of the conversation to be condemnation. I don't want it to be me, like, talking to you. But, guys, this is, a, this is 25 people in this room, 30 people in this room. If we can't have a, a heart-to-heart conversation about really kind of the, the bottom, lowest common denominator and walk out of here with some nuts and bolts, then we're really kind of kidding each other. At the end of the day, and we have some serious issues, I know, in, the, in this room, probably with our sons and daughters, that now wouldn't be the right time to bring up. But I will tell you this as a nugget to take away, as a nut and bolt to take away. I was sharing this with my wife during the break when I was back home having a bite to eat with them. Is that this really changed for me in a big way years ago when I realized the age-old age adage of, you know, we have all heard our parents say this is, you know, hey, son or daughter, don't do as I do, but do as I say. Who's heard their parents say that, you know? Hey, kid, don't smoke, as our parents used to smoke. Both my parents did. 
back then. It was socially acceptable back then. Hey, don't do it. You know, as, you know, you know, they're like, you know, so it did, did it just didn't, did, you know, the disconnection was great. And I'm not here to talk about, you know, smoking or drinking or any of those types of social issues out there, but the point is well taken. If we want to be compassionate people, but we're not, we want our kids to be compassionate people, but we're not compassionate, then it's never going to happen. It's a great study. You guys can do your own research on it. They say that we only hear about 20% of what's spoken, a little less than 20% of what's spoken. And we were kidding in the, in the first part of this, the first group, is that you guys will only hear less than a third of what I say today. I mean, really hear and retain as you walk out those doors in just, uh, just a few minutes. Just the reality, you know. So the things that we're trying to say to our children, you know, don't do this, don't do that, but we're modeling something that's not even completely relevant or close to a discipled life of Jesus. Those non-spoken, non-verbal cues far outweigh anything that we could ever say. Matter of fact, we could say, I would challenge you that we could probably say to our children over and over and over and over and over and over again the same day, but yet model correctly one time the heart of Christ, and they would get it. They would see it. They say most people are visual learners, or at least, you know, audible learners. You know, they, you know, we can hear something or see something at the same time, and we really learn as compared to instructional learners. Yeah. And so when we're instructing our kids, how are we instructing them? I mean, it's a, in, 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 I hear parents say all the time, you know, uh, complaints that, you know, moms and dads come to my wife and I with, hey, my kid's just not getting it. They attend all the events at church. I'm giving them financially everything, you know, providing for sports teams and setting up all these parameters for them to do well. But they're not connecting here. This is where I want them to connect. And my first question is, it's not a, it's not a throwing stones at a glass house question. It's just simply the first question answer that I want to know is, well, where, where, where is your life right now? Where are you pursuing God and how is that relationship going? It's my first, I don't even want to know about their children when I sit down with them. How are you? And oftentimes, the very first response I get back is, ah, well, I know, I, I know I'm just not, you know, things are going this way or that way, or I'm struggling here. And those are all valid. We all struggle with stuff. You know, but the expectation sometimes for the next generation skips us, does it not? Every generation's been the same, you know. My dad wanted something better for me, but maybe wasn't necessarily willing to model it at times. And Keith and I were talking earlier, he had a great point about the exponential growth of Christianity. Share that with him again. You said you and your wife oh, yeah, talk, this was, talked about the exponential growth if just one person in your family. Yeah, this was kind of interesting. Good. Because we have seven children, we thought, what if all our kids had seven children? Okay, so that's 49 grandkids. They haven't, so, but... It's possible, though. It, it could happen. <laughs> we did the math on it. We took the number of evangelical Christians that are in the world and said if every evangelical Christian had seven kids and then they married godly people and they also had seven children, if you raised your own children to know the Lord... And if you lead one person to Jesus in your lifetime, 
It takes three generations to win the world. That's over 7 billion people. Mathematically. Now, it gets kind of tricky because if one of my kids marries one of his, well, there, you know, some numbers get duplicated and all of that. But the point would be this. If you just do a good job of being a dad, we can have a tremendous impact on the world in the realm of evangelism and winning people to Jesus. I think it's the greatest need the evangelical church faces today in the 21st century. I honestly do. And I'll tell you the reason why I believe this is that my last pastoral ministry position was we are church plant pastors in an urban context down in South Florida. That's where we came from. We've just been here about almost two years. And so we were there for about almost three, and this was the 13th most dangerous place to live, basically the, the metroplex from Miami to West Palm Beach, everything east of 95. It's very urban, very underdeveloped, um, you know, poverty-stricken, um, just tons of drugs and crime, violent crime. It's a, it's a dangerous place to live all up and down that corridor, and that's exactly right on the north end of that is where our church was planted. So our demo, demographically, it looked a lot different than this church. Matter of fact, it would be the reverse. We would have predominantly African-American, Hispanic-American uh, individuals attend our church on any given Sunday where there would be a few white folks that would show up, which is great. You know, we were just open to all, but just demographically in that neighborhood, that's, that's what it was like. And I'll say this, is having spent almost three years in that context, and I had no idea, I came from suburban life, suburban church, you know, for 25 plus years, is that I realized that over 90% of the young men, young fathers, you know, or even just the adolescents that would come in to the church, part of our youth, part of our, you know, uh, early elementary and middle school programs, didn't have a dad. They just had, they didn't, contextually didn't know this from a loving father figure. And I made this assumption, and it's, it literally rings true to me every time I say it, that Regardless of the dads in that area, in that corridor, being good or bad, regardless if they're drug addicts or alcoholics or they have extraordinary vices they're dealing with or just social issues that they're dealing with, if you add back the dad, even dysfunctional dad, back into that equation, you take care of 50% of the problems immediately. 50% go away overnight. It's astonishing to me. So what happens when you put the dad back and you add some of these characteristic traits, the image of God, the image of Christ, through them to the community and to their kids? Like he said, exponential growth happens. Not only now do you have a functional family unit, but it seems to explode on that block. So we saw blocks coming to know Christ, relationships mended, Fathers becoming reconciled with their children and complete growth and development, love, redemption, hope, literally being lived out on a daily basis. It was phenomenal. It almost kind of seemed like the Truman experiment to me, to be honest with you. Like, I was looking for the cameras, because like I, I, it, was, it was so odd and foreign to me. So transfer that over here now. Here we are in, in, in Colorado Springs. That context may seem a little foreign to you. It may, it may be a little dramatic or outside of your context or, or you know, your, your thought pattern. It certainly was for me. So I'll give you a, a, another analogy to it. You guys are all dads. You all live here in Colorado Springs. 
I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you, attend New Life. Most of you have family units intact, certainly not part of the structure that I just mentioned or just identified or described. So incrementally, if we were to move the ball just a fraction, five yards in this focus, focused on our life as a disciple believer of Jesus, focused on our kids' life, transferring that compassion and understanding, that knowledge, that desire to serve God in all that we do, what would happen exponentially on your block, in your house, in the four walls that can find wherever it is that you live? I'd venture to guess this, that you would see a measurable, overnight measurable amount of growth, not only in your family, but also in the people that you know contextually. Workers, colleagues, neighbors, people who sit on the same row of you at church, the same section. It would be astonishing if every man in this room literally pursued, made it their full focus to pursue the things of the Lord like they've never had before. It would literally take this city and turn it upside down for the things of God. Matter of fact, I think it would be so much so that it it would become almost a a national phenomenon. People would come and go, what is going on at Colorado Springs? I saw it firsthand in this little small 25 square block area of West Palm Beach literally exploded with the things of the Lord. Just because we added back at some side, we didn't, but God did. God just brought the dad, not even sanctified dad, just dad back and said, hey, it's time for you to get back in the house. You still have your issues. We'll deal with those. Just sleep in that bed. Say hi to your two kids or your four kids every morning. Changed everything overnight for us as a congregation, as a people of God. And so interesting, and I was praying about this, thinking about, okay, God, what do I want to share with these guys? It's kind of like a charge. We have a few minutes, I know. And I thought around fathering, and most of you were sitting with the very first session with Brady this morning and heard when he talked about Joshua, about you know, me and my house, right? Me and my house, he made a declaration that day. Why did Joshua make a declaration that day? Why was it necessary? Everybody saw Joshua live out this life after God, right? We know the story contextually. Joshua is the aid of Moses. Moses is in the promised land, not going to be able to go in, right? Because it's disobedience. Moses is, I mean, Joshua is going to go into the promised land and take care of business. So for the 23 chapters of Joshua that we read, it's basically carnage. <laughs> it's Joshua sweeping the countryside clean of everybody that's non-Israel, for the most part. It's victory after victory, God giving them incredible leadership through Joshua's leadership and victories through Joshua's leadership, and just this amazing book of leadership. And at the very end, it culminates into chapter 24. Joshua's an older man. He's well advanced in years, about 110 and he has this, these words to say to a much younger nation now. The next generation, just like Keith was saying. Your kids. So it would be dads talking to sons, right? Kind of reminds me of Timothy and Paul. We get that same kind of feel in First and Second Timothy. These are letters that Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. His spiritual son. Remember how he even describes himself. I'm his spiritual dad. He's my spiritual son. I'm writing this letter to him from prison in Rome. As a matter of fact, I'm running out of paper. So the chances are that four-page or five-page letter to Timothy is important, is it not? 
Who's going to waste any time? Paul knows he's going to the gallows. Paul knows he's not getting out of prison alive. He's got a few words to say, right? You better make them good. Kind of like that last dying statement that you hope to convey to your son or your daughter. You want to make it great. It's not going to be something lofty or, or corny or something that you haven't thought about or resonated on. It's going to be good. You've got to make this thing count. That's exactly what we have here in Joshua. Life well lived, well modeled, these attributes. Some, some would say that Joshua is probably the book of Joshua, the character of Joshua, the person of Joshua is probably the most epic saga of leadership. You can go to biblical schools and leadership and they, they, they teach on Joshua, no doubt about it. Business leaders follow him. You can hear a lot of the podcasts when they talk about leadership, they teach on Joshua. He was an epic leader. But in chapter 24, we get this different context. He's an older man, and he's talking to this group of younger men, and he's saying this. And let's pick up. If you guys have your Bible here, we'll start in chapter 24. We're only going to read a few verses. And it's verse 14. And so I always like to, I always like to read the Bible this way. That the Bible's a narrative, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, right? It's a story. It's a story of God's redemption through the people of Israel, then being transferred to us, the Gentile nation through Christ, the hope of the world. But in in that narrative, there's individual stories that have their own narrative. And so when you read a story, when you read a a regular novel, what do you look for? The beginning is what? Sets the plot. And then there's a point of climax, right? Like dun, dun, dun. You know, here it is. Here's when all the story's unfolding. And that happens in Joshua. And then there's the end of the wrap-up where everything is going to come together. It's like those suspense movies where you don't know who did it, and then it's five minutes in, at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, it's all coming together here now. Makes them, you understand the whole movie in context. It's exactly what's happening here. 24, verse 14, Joshua is speaking. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. It's exactly what we've been talking about, discipled life. Basically, you could race that verse and just say, Joshua wanted everybody to live a true discipled life in all faithfulness. Throw away gods of your, four, your, your, your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt. In other words, throw all the cultural things away that you, you idolize. Money, fame. I love what Gabe just said, right? You know, about the matador, the 2,000-pound bull. It's hysterical. Really just want people to acknowledge us. You know, all those things that we idolize, we put up on shelves. Joshua is saying, chuck all those. Pursue God with all your heart. Verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day. This man's making, on his deathbed, is making a declaration to everybody saying, hey, I don't know what you guys are doing. Remember, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, hey, I don't know who you're following, but follow me because I'll lead you the way. That's a pretty bold statement, huh? I mean, that's a really bold statement. I know where I'm going, so follow me because I'm following Jesus Christ. That's exactly what Joshua is saying. Make a declaration. Stand for something. But for me, let's read on. Then choose for yourself this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living currently. And I love this verse. This is This is the culmination of the entire book of Joshua. But as for me and my household, 
what are we going to do? We're going to serve the Lord. And in not some really colloquial way of hanging a picture above the door you see in a lot of homes and not for show, Joshua is saying this on his deathbed. He's not saying it for applause. He's not saying it for someone to say, that was a great speech, Joshua. He's saying it as an internal declaration of who he is on the inside and what he wants to accomplish. Matter of fact, some would argue that this is the culmination of what Joshua's legacy really, he, what he wants it to be. Not the military victories. Surely he could have st- stood on those alone. One of the greatest probably generals the, the, the world has ever known, certainly. That's not what he wanted people to know. He wanted people to know, and certainly the next generation, his kids, because he's speaking about my family. In the first person, all right, he's talking about my kids, I want them to know and I want you to know that we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to develop these character traits in great number. Not like we're there. We're not arrived. We're not perfection. But we're going to seek love and compassion and availability and be the protector, the provider. Very image of who Christ, who God is through Christ Jesus. That's what I want to be. It has set the tone for his family. Set the tone for the nation because they're going to need it. They were going to need it. Moving on into Judges, things get rocky really quickly. And I would venture to guess, guys, wherever you're at, and I don't have a solution or, you know, some little magic ball underneath here to solve all, all the problems of the world, but I do know this, that just like adding the dad back into the family, dysfunctional or not, wiped away 50% of the problems in an urban context in the church we serve. Amazing. I do know that adding these through the image of who God is in your life, Pursuing God, pursuing Christ with all your heart will change the very nature of who you are and it will change the very nature of who your kids are. And I'll go so far as to say it will change the very nature of who their kids are. But it's got to start with you. It's got to start with me. There's no other way for that equation to work. I've tried it. Keith has tried it. We've looked at it multiple different angles. It won't work. There's only one way to transfer that. So let's wrap up. I want to ask you guys just to take what we've shared today as thoughts to apply individually in your own situation because you've got lots of spans of different families and different age groups of your children and all of that. But as he shared, let's, let's take the time to make that choice. I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm going to put him first and I'm going to make him the Lord of everything that I do as a dad. Father, as we get ready to go to dinner now, I ask you in Jesus' name to take the words that Dave and I have spoken and implant into the individual hearts the words you want them to hear. And it'll be different for different guys. Take those words that will encourage them and strengthen them and give them maybe a a higher and greater and longer vision of what you've got in mind for them so they can be the best dads they can be. And bless our dinner tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Appreciate you guys.